Hello and welcome again to another edition of Lost in Science. This is half an hour on your radio where we will be talking about all things scientific. My name is Stu and on this week's show I'm going to be talking about how you get to work and whether or not that will actually make you a healthier person. So there's been a study from Scotland uh, showing that depending on how you get to work has a huge influence on your health prospects um, in general. Really? Yes, really. Oh, I really want to know what the best way to get to work is now. Well, it's certainly not any kind of sedentary uh, way ah. of getting to work. So obviously, hint, hint. yeah, you can, you can have a yeah. think about that. Um, Claire, what have you got for us this week? Well, this week I'm going to be speaking to Associate Professor Oliver Jones um, about Parabens, which isn't the Portuguese um, word for congratulations. Well, it is, but um, it's also a chemical that is put in a lot of toiletries and cosmetics um, and it acts as um, uh, like it stops bacterial growth. It's a preservative. That's the word I'm looking for. And, and is it above good, which is kind of what paraben means in Portuguese? Yeah, well... I don't know if you've seen this on the side of your cosmetics bottles, but there's a lot of things that say like no parabens or paraben free. Mm. Yes, those mm. sorts of things. Yeah. So like, I was getting curious about what what the hell this parabens is, and is it really as bad as everyone says? Well, you know, the marketing on the side of the the bottle tells me. Um, so Ollie is an analytical chemist, and he's going to give me the down low on the parabens if it's above good or below good, even. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And also, Manisha is going to be talking about uh, the effect of roads on the environment and like why why roads might be not a good thing, even though for us people, they're a really good thing. It's an awful lot of paving and bitumen. Yeah. And also, you know, dividing mm. up habitat fragmentation habitat and things. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 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 So we'll hear about that later on in the show. Hi there, guys. It's Captain Correlation back again with another... Do I need a fanfare? I think maybe in the future we'll I think be, you we'll need both fanfare, fanfare and yeah. cape. Yeah, if you're wearing the cape okay. as you are now and the tights. I mean, I mean, you're wearing the cape, right? Well, I took it off because it gets caught in the door sometimes. <laughs> it's quite dangerous. CC. Um, so I've got another interesting health study, this time from the University of Glasgow, and it's all about how people get to work. So the researchers in this case were wondering how different modes of transport for getting to work affected people's health and whether they could find any connection to their overall health outcomes. So most people in the UK, which is where they did their study, uh, get to work in a pretty sedentary fashion, either by driving themselves or taking public transport so someone else is driving them and they're either standing on the bus or sitting down on a chair or on a seat. Or in a chariot. Or um, coughing, coughing in someone's ear. 
Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's normally um, what happens to me when I'm on public transport. Yeah. Someone's <laughs> coughing up a lung. You've got to take that hand right sanitizer with you. Mm. Or not, because it's sanitizer. not that great. Um, <laughs> so the researchers wanted to see if there's any difference between people who sat all the way to work and people who either walked or rode a bike to work and if that had any effect on their general health indicators. So they followed a cohort of workers over the age of 53 who were employed full-time or ran their own businesses full-time over a five-year period. And they identified five groups of people in their cohort, uh, which was non-active who drove themselves or were driven, uh, walkers, cyclists, walkers who were also partly non-active, so people who walked some distance to public transport or from public transport, and riders who were also partly non-active. So they also got public transport part of the way. Um, They excluded from their study anyone with heart disease or cancer already, and they adjusted for accident risk as well as factors including age, diet, smoking, socioeconomic, and other demographic factors. So what did they find? Well, after five years, they found that cyclists had a 41% lower risk of dying from any cause over the period of the study compared to the non-active group of commuters. 41%. Wow. 41% That's lower huge. risk. That is surprisingly huge. Yeah, surprisingly huge. Um, the cyclists also had a 52% lower risk of dying from heart disease, a wow. 40% lower risk of dying from cancer, and around 45% lower risk of developing cancer or heart disease than all of the non-active commuters. Okay. Well, what's all, what ages? What age range do So they're over fifty-three. So they're sort of in the in the danger area for but, but developing under, these under things. Under a certain age as well. Like well, going to work. No, because they they, <laughs> they took it up until the end of the five-year period. Um, but they're working, so they're below yeah, yeah. below retirement age. Mm. Um, so it's pretty impressive figures. Maybe it's just exercise. Maybe just exercising on your way to work as a daily thing yeah. uh, is is a good protective uh, disease risk-lowering activity. Well, no. Oh, Because <laughs> the walkers, the people who walk to work, didn't get that kind of uh, drop in their risk. So uh, people who walked to work had a 20, 27% lower risk of developing heart disease and a 36% lower risk of dying from it but they didn't have a lower risk of dying from all causes. Is there something magic about cycling then? Is it like Lycra acts as a compression band? <laughs> it's probably more to do with the impact and the aerobic activity rather than the, um, than the, than the gear that you're wearing right. um, while you're cycling. Um, Did they take into account running at all? I don't, I don't think they... No. I don't think there was enough people who ran to work to make a, make a group of people that was comparable... I guess one of the things here is like we, we are talking to Captain Correlation and the question is like correlation causation. I mean, is it going to be people are healthy because they ride or do they ride because they're healthy? Well, that's, that's one thing about the age range because a lot of people say, well, die from these various causes after they've retirement age. And so we're talking about people who are kind of in the middle age, but the ones who are not tracking their heart disease. So people who get heart disease are going to be your unfit kind of people who are less likely to be on the bikes. Well, that it's it's an interesting it's an interesting um, idea that maybe there are other factors beyond how they choose to get to work. Mm. Um, you, you wouldn't ride a bike to work unless you're relatively fit already. 
So yeah, um, and and similar with walking. If you've got any problems with walking, it's going to affect your general health. But your decision to walk would be based on the fact that you can do yeah. that distance. Um, so they also found in the study that um, that the cyclists who took public transport some of the way to work had lower risks for cancer and heart disease, but people who walked and took pub- public transport didn't have any lower risk. So they were pretty much grouped out into the into the sedentary whole time group. They their outcomes were more or less the same as the group that didn't even walk, just caught public transport and drove themselves. Maybe yeah, they, they, were, a little bit to the they were a lot lower. Um, yeah. Don't they? Yeah. They, they walk to the bus stop. Well, you have to walk some distance. They, they mean yeah. a significant distance. Okay. Like yeah. maybe you walk... There were two groups. Half the way. Yeah. Um, but they also found that the further people cycled or walked, the greater the benefit. So... Oh. There was, you know, this there's sort of there's correlations within correlations yeah, in yeah. this okay. in this case. So take that circuitous work walk. No, <laughs> take that. Get, get off the bus earlier, basically. Yeah, or just ride around town for a little while before you get to work or yeah. go home. Get a job further Don't away go from straight. home. Yeah, get a job further away from home. Oh, move yeah, move further away from your work. <laughs> it's, you've got options aplenty. Um, so there's obviously a connection between the high-intensity physical exercise of cycling and improved health out- outcomes, but it's not necessarily a result of solely riding. There's, and as Chris just said, it is a correlation that they've found, not necessarily a causal relationship. So maybe people who cycle uh, pay more attention to their health in general. Yeah, um, maybe, they, maybe they cycle other times they don't just cycle to work whereas other people might commute and that's the only exercise they get in the in their whole week it's really hard to tell um from this study but um so the, they also compared the UK to other countries like Denmark and the Netherlands where cycling is a much more common form of transport uh and found that people in the UK are discouraged from cycling because they're worried about the other traffic on the roads for one thing and that there's a lack of cycling infrastructure. Um, but it'd be interesting uh, to, to look at similar things in Australia where I think we've got similar problems with getting people onto their bikes. Um, but it would be, you know, even more interesting to follow up this study and find out what it is about the people who cycle that makes them healthier and is it just the cycling or is there something else uh, going on there as well? Mm. Parabens means congratulations in Portuguese, but it might sound familiar to you for a different reason. You might have seen the words no parabens plastered on the side of cosmetics or body and face washes. Now, obviously, in this context, it doesn't mean congratulations. It means something else. So I thought I would have a look into parabens. What this chemical is, what does it do in cosmetics and toiletries? And why is there now a movement away from these parabens? Is this something we should be worried about? 
And to do that today, I've enlisted the help of analytical chemist, Associate Professor Dr. Oliver Jones from RMIT to talk us through the science of parabens and their use. Welcome to Lost in Science, Ollie. Oh, thanks for having me, Claire. Wonderful. So let's just um, start with the basics. Now, what exactly are these parabens? Uh, parabens are, it's actually, it's a group of chemicals. Um, they're all fairly small and they're commonly used as preservatives um, in cosmetic products as well as food and a number of other things. All right. So they're, um, they're additives that, that, um, that people put in cosmetics or in, or in soaps or things like that. Uh, yes, they're there to stop, you know, bacteria or fungi and so forth growing in your face cream or whatever. And do they have a um, specific chemical structure? Like, are they out of the ordinary? Well, that could be a quite a long question. <laughs> it depends how much detail you'd like me to go into. They, they do have a, a specific chemical structure. Essentially, it's, it's a, a ring structure with a, a long chain coming off one end of it. Uh, as that chain gets longer, you get slightly different parabens. Now, like I said in the intro, you see a lot of marketing highlighting this no parabens or paraben-free sort of aspect of a product. Why is this? What, what are the concerns around their use? Well, most of the concerns come from a paper that came out in 2004 where they showed that um, certain breast cancer tissues um, actually contained parabens. So they took the tumours out uh, and they analysed them and they found some parabens in them. They didn't actually say in that paper that the parabens were causing cancer and that paper has come under some criticism because they didn't check the other tissues from, from the same people. Okay, so they didn't do control checks? Uh, not really in that one, no. But to be fair, they didn't actually claim in that paper that parabens cause cancer. They were just saying, we found these in, in the tissue. And there's some concern, or some people are worried because parabens, some parabens have been shown to be very mildly estrogenic. And what that means is they can have a similar effect to estrogen. There okay. are a number of, of chemicals that um, can do this, in, uh, including a lot of natural plant compounds. Um, and some plants actually make parabens. Oh, right. Okay, so this isn't necessarily a synthetic chemistry. This is... Well, the, the stuff you found in, in a cosmetic is synthetic. It's made in a lab, but it's made exactly the same structure as the natural versions. These um, estrogenic properties? Yeah. yeah. You say they've been found in, in other sort of foods and stuff. Like, is that what you would see in, like, is it some soy products that might be... Might have... um, yeah, some, well, there's some uh, soy products and isoflavones. BPA is mildly estrogenic. But I, I should point out that when I see estrogenic, it's, very, it's, it's like 100,000 times less estrogenic than estrogen. Right. So it's extremely weak. You'd have to have an incredibly large dose. But some people feel that the estrogen has a role in breast cancer progression and that it's, it's, um, some cancers are increased by high estrogen levels. It sounds like there's just been this one, this one paper that's sort of come out. Well, there's a few papers that show that these things are mildly estrogenic. We think yep. that estrogens have an effect on, or can possibly have an effect on breast cancer and people are worried about it. And I think if, if you have public concern, whether it's warranted or not, then a manufacturer will respond to it. Right. Uh, which is why they take these things out. Right, okay. So even, even if the evidence um, isn't necessarily conclusive... Yeah, well, there's certainly it... no evidence that each, uh, the parabens cause breast cancer or mm -hmm. have any health effect. So, so should, should people be worried about this? Uh, personally, no, um, because, well, there's, there's several reasons. The, the, the dose you get from cosmetics is far less than you get from your food. So even if you use paraben-free uh, cosmetics, you're probably still being exposed to parabens. Right. They're very small. Um, they're natural products, or based on natural products, and they're not 
particularly nasty to people. There's no, no proof that they are harmful, um, unless you were to, you know, eat a bucket's worth of them, which would obviously be um, unlikely. <laughs> and um, not that great tasting, I no. imagine, as well. <laughs> Wouldn't offer you a lot of nutritional value. No, probably not. Probably not. That's sort of some evidence. Uh, is Have there been studies that show the effectiveness of parabens to do their job um, effectively as antifungal uh, preservatives? Like what's... Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, there's, you wouldn't use them if they weren't effective. They're, they're very good at um, stopping bacteria and fungi and so forth growing in, in, in products. That's why they're there. Um, they're also cheap and easy to make, which is another reason people use them. I imagine it's pretty important to to put preservatives into things like beauty products so you don't get a huge amount of bacterial load. Uh, well, yes, yes, it certainly is. I mean, if you take the parabens out, so it's possible you can make a paraben-free product, but it has a much shorter shelf life, uh, and therefore it's going to be more expensive and you can't ship it as far. Or you have to use something else that stops bacteria and fungi growing, which um, may be less effective or, or, you know, the compound might actually be worse than the paraben, which is actually not very harmful to humans at all. What do you think, in your in your opinion, should be, I guess, the next line of study for looking at the safety of parabens or at least, I guess, educating the public around their use? Well, I think something that would be very useful to educate the public on, on toxicology is, is the dose-response relationship because plenty of things are bad for you, but it's, it's as, as Paracelsus said, it's the dose that makes the poison, not mm-hmm. the substance itself. So sunlight is very bad for you if you get too much of it because that causes skin cancer. But that doesn't mean the moment you step outside, you're going to get skin cancer. Alcohol is also known to cause cancer, but that doesn't mean you're going to get <laughs> have a problem if you drink in moderation. So, you know, um, it's thinking about what, what the effective dose of the substance is. Absolutely. And when it comes to parabens, I guess it's it's a matter of just understanding that a little bit is okay and maybe just... Don't drink a whole bucket load. Yeah, well, well, I think you'd be very unlikely to do that unless you worked in a factory that made them. But uh, and they're probably solids anyway. But you just understand they're not there to poison people. They're there for a reason. They're to stop things growing in your, in your product. Would might would many fungi make much worse chemicals. So they're doing a job. They're not harmful to people. There's no proof that they're um, harmful at the levels they're used at, uh, and they're they're they're, for, they're helping. Fantastic. Thanks so much, Ollie. Thanks for providing such a rational evidence-based analysis of these parabens. It's always good to get a scientific insight into the marketing that we see on our supermarket shelves. Ah, no problem at all. Happy to help. You're travelling through another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a wondrous land whose boundaries are that of imagination. That's the signpost up ahead. Your next stop. Lost in science. So um, when we think of environmental um, impacts, we think of a few sort of major things. We think of maybe mining projects or new development estates. Maybe think of an oil spill or deforestation. Um, But... One of the biggest impacts that doesn't seem to come up very often is that of roads. We use roads every day in our daily commutes, and sometimes it can be hard to relate something so prominent and widespread with an environmental problem. But roads are actually really, really detrimental to our Earth. We currently have over 64 million kilometers of road on Earth, and 
That's roughly equivalent to 83 trips to the moon and back. And that's a massive number. And I really, I don't, I can't really fathom it. Um, but as we continue to um, expand and develop around the globe and turn every inch of our earth into a city, um, we're going to be adding more and more roads to our earth. We're actually expecting to add about, <clears throat> um, expecting to add at least 25 million more kilometers um, of paved road, paved road, not unpaved road, not paths, just paved roads by 2050. Um, and to completely understand the impacts of road is not the easiest of tasks because the type of roads, um, the type of impacts roads have can be quite broad and it can be actually pretty hard to detect and evaluate. Um, so we have some direct impacts of roads and um, these sort of impacts you may be aware of. There's things like land use change and modification, habitat destruction and fragmentation, and also things like um, road mortality. So like where animals are hit by roads, or <laughs> they're not hit by roads, when animals are hit by cars or, or maybe they're avoiding the roads for one reason or another. Um, these impacts can restrict the movement of animals um, to small patches and it can reduce the amount of useful habitat they have and um, how much space they have to breed and forage and basically just survive in. Other types of impacts include indirect impacts. And so the, these ones are a bit more, you've got to sort of step away from the road a little bit. Just if you think of where there's one road comes a network of roads. So there's the spill of destruction. Um, forests tend to be logged closest to forest roads um, for ease of access. Or if you have a really well-traveled road, oftentimes those roads tend to get estates and um, shopping mm. centers and things like that. Developments De and stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So the, a road is basically the first, um, the first path to destruction. And so um, <laughs> I'm really cheery about all of this. Um, yeah, and so roads can have really um, widespread detrimental impacts. Um, other sorts of in indirect impacts can include things like sensory pollution. Um, so we light roads for human safety, but this light uh, spills into the surrounding habitat, which could be detrimental for, um, for species, maybe nocturnal species that aren't used to dealing with these kind of things. Or when we're constructing roads or using roads, we're introducing chemicals and noise into the environment that, again, these are challenges that species will have to cope with in order to survive in the landscape. The other really horrible thing about roads is that the impact of a road doesn't exist just solely at this side of the road. Instead, they have an impact zone around their perimeter, and these zones can vary based on the species in question. If you're if you're studying, um, if you're studying a wide uh, a wider spread species or a species that has a larger home range, maybe their impact zone is a bit larger than a species that has a smaller um, home range. The topography of the landscape can can um, change the impacts of the road. So if you have a flat landscape, the uh, impact tends to spread further than say if you had a, um, a hilly landscape or if you're in the mountains. Um, and then also the type of road. If you have a little dirt path or something like that, probably this road won't have as strong of an impact as say a multi-lane highway that's traveled by 100,000 cars every day. So the, type, so the type of impacts can vary based on the situation and based on the, um, the circumstances. 
There was actually a study back in 1998, um, one of the fundamental studies in, in rotocology that showed that um, in the United States, 1% of the landscape, so this was in 1998, 1% of the landscape was covered um, by roads, but the impact of these roads actually extended to cover 15 to 20% of that landscape. So you can understand that there's quite a detrimental impact of roads in our world. And if we keep adding roads to our globe, there's going to be very little space that's not impacted by roads. Um, now, hmm, where am I? Um, but people need roads. People, people need do access know roads. to markets and access to exactly. so, facilities. And, yeah. yeah. So, so you can't exactly say, oh, don't build a road. Yeah. That's probably not something I would argue. But um, there's sort of the, I, I suppose... One of the things that I actually deal with on a daily basis, given my PhD, is um, understanding what these different impacts could be, how they vary for different species, and then what potential mitigation strategies we could develop to help ease some of these impacts. So in my PhD, I'm evaluating the impact of roads on bats, and I'm looking at a sp I'm specifically focusing on that impact of nighttime lighting, like street lights, on nocturnal species. Mm -hmm. And so I've been investigating how roads may um, impact the movement in bats and how, how roads can change or alter the direction or the space that the bats are using. But um, if we sort of remove ourselves from that and think of some broader scaled solutions, just an umbrella solution for roads and the impacts that they have, unfortunately there aren't any. We can't really come up with one, uh, one great solution to tackle this problem just because there's so many little smaller it's so convoluted and all of the issues are pretty um, pretty independent of one another. So you've got to tackle each individual issue on its own. So if um, so, I mentioned before things like uh, road mortality where the individuals are getting hit by cars or they're being restricted from accessing um, habitat. These uh, fall under a broader term called barrier impact. So the road is a barrier to the movement for the individuals. And um, barrier impacts could be mitigated by using crossing structures, for example, and crossing structures are just safe passageways designed for the um, designed to allow the movement of individuals without ha without them having to access the road. For light impacts, maybe there's some different mitigation strategies. There's not really one sort of strategy that everybody agrees on, but perhaps you put shades on your lights so that the the lighting is directed solely downwards and the spill into the surrounding environment is um, reduced or maybe um, you don't light as many of the or as much of the highway so here in Victoria we find that um, some of our straight although they're quite well-traveled roads they're not lit the entire way through unless there's an intersection or unless there's a like a hot spot for um, perhaps some danger to humans. So that's a pretty good thing to do. Or maybe um, using interval lighting, so lighting during peak hours and things like that, so not lighting for the entire um, course of the night. But these are just some examples. Um, these are examples of solutions that we can think of right now and solutions that we're aware of, but so many of, our, of the issues um, don't have any solutions, and that's where research and innovative design come into play. The more we understand about the impacts, the better we can plan for them and try to mitigate them. I also think it's really important to survey areas of planned roads before they go in because if you know what's going on in that road, you know what wildlife is there, you know what you can mitigate for, and you can you can actually target the mitigation strategy for the species in the in the area and and um, help 
that strategy be more successful? Because if you have something that's not really paired for the species and it's not really suitable for the species, they're probably not going to use it. So say say you have lots of large animals, but you create two small crossing structures, then probably you're not those animals are not going to be able to use that space as much. Um, and also early surveys can also uh, show maybe where it like it might suggest that you shouldn't be putting a road as planned through that area. Maybe it's some critical habitat and an and alternative route is more um, is more convenient or maybe better in the long run. Um, in any case, it's a long road to completely understanding um, and mitigating the impact of uh, roads on our environment, and all we can hope for is more research into the best ways to do so and road agencies that are actually interested in implementing those findings. That's all we've got time for on this episode of Lost in Science. Thanks for tuning in and joining us. Lost in Science is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne and broadcast across Australia on the Community Radio Network with the financial assistance of the Community Broadcasting Foundation. If you want to talk to us, talk back to us, uh, you can get in touch. We have a Gmail account, lostinsight at Gmail. Uh, You can also find us on Twitter and on the Facebook Uh, And if that's not enough lost in science for you, you can always tune in again next week where the team will once again get lost in science. listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.